Welcome to the Wolfson Theatre. Uh, for those who've never been in this theatre before, I'm Joanne and I'm, I'll be your host for this panel. Please be reminded that in the case of a fire, there are two emergency exits on both sides. And if you hear a fire alarm, please go to your closest emergency exit. It would also be much appreciated if mobile phones can be put on the silent mode. Titled China's Grand Vision, the focus of this panel is on China's One Belt, One Road initiative. This panel aims to provide a holistic discussion on this initiative, and with us today we have three esteemed speakers. Starting from my far left, we have the chairman of the 48 Group Club, Mr. Stephen Perry. The Minister Councillor of the Chinese Embassy in the UK, Mr. Zhang Jimin. And finally, we have the Chairman of Indochina, Myanmar, and Thailand of the Macquarie Group, and the moderator of this panel, Mr. Lee George Lam. Okay, let me pass the stage to Mr. Lam. Uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, really, a warm welcome to our panel. I think uh, right now, uh, I don't think uh, the time should be spent on uh, too much uh, formalities and nicety, but I'd like to just say that uh, uh, our two speakers uh, here on the panel uh, distinguished uh, uh, experts and uh, practitioners in, in fields relevant to our topic today. Um, and uh, I'm deeply impressed by uh, Mrs. Uh, Stephen uh, um, uh, Perry's um, long uh, service and contributions to uh, to the ties between China and and the UK and all the international activities uh, throughout the three generations of his family, you know, since the Qing Dynasty, and also Mr. Zhang, uh, I'm very uh, impressed, you know, by uh, his uh, experience, vast experience in the uh, foreign affairs area, you know, having been uh, uh, the head of the uh, international division as well as the deputy head of the general. Uh, department uh, in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of China, very experienced in Europe and in the Middle East, and uh, also, as he said to me, uh, he's, he loves London. He likes the UK, so uh, he likes the LSE. So I, uh, I'm very pleased, you know. <laughs> Today, uh, uh, I, I must say that uh, my plan is uh, to let, uh, uh, to follow the agenda, let uh, Minister Councillor Zhang speak first, uh, and, uh, and then uh, Mr. Stephen uh, Perry, uh, and then I will have just a few words to lead into another important component of the panel uh, program, which is Q&A discussion. Uh, we look forward to good questions and comments, suggestions from the audience, and uh, hopefully after that, uh, if we can uh, stay, uh, we'll make friends and exchange our business cards, okay? So, and now uh, 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 back to the, uh, the, uh, the next uh, element of the program, uh, Minister, uh, Councillor Jiang, please. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mr. Lam, thank you for your kind words. It's truly a Great pleasure for me to, to join you today. Yes, L.S. Lee is not an unfamiliar place for me. Uh, more than 10 years ago, I, worked, I also worked here in London for the first time. Often I came here 
to to attend the uh, the public lectures at that time, so I could I could be considered a quasi student here. <laughs> um, I guess many of you would agree with me that when talking about China, it's mostly about things grand and spectacular. Uh, one good example, as Chinese New, uh, Lunar New Year is around the corner, is the annual massive human movement which is going on now in China. We call it Chunyun, or spring movement. Uh, at this time of the year, most Chinese rush home, back home, for family reunion. But its scale, which a scale which stands around three billion uh, person time, I think is beyond imagination for, for many people. So it's roughly uh, it roughly means moving the whole population of Europe, Africa, North and South America, Japan, <laughs> from one place to another in 40 days. Another good case, I think, is our today's topic, the Belt and the Road Initiative. 2,500 2, years ago, Confucius had a grand vision of his own. In the Book of Rights, Li uh, Ji, he depicted in great detail the state of a grand commonwealth. So, uh, maybe, yeah. So. He says, when the great way prevails, all the people under heaven are dedicated to public well-being. The worthy are selected for high offices. The capable are assigned to fitting positions. Integri integrity is cultivated and harmony development uh, developed. Men, therefore, do not love only their own parents, nor do, do they cherish only their own children. The aged, the young, the orphaned, the widowed, the childless, the disabled, the diseased are all cared for. Each man will have his share, each woman her home. Everyone will work to bring more abundance to all, not to themselves alone. The ancient Chinese vision, I think, still has its resonance today, and it's highly inspiring for people in the 21st century. About five centuries later than Confucius' time, people on the land of Eurasia, Europe, Asia, and Africa started to explore opening up several routes of trade, cultural exchanges that linked the major civilizations of Asia, Europe, and Africa the routes known to later generations as the Silk Road. Over history, it nurtured the spirit of peace and cooperation, openness and inclusiveness, mutual learning and mutual benefit. It's an invaluable heritage that no one bears to ignore. Nowadays, as complex, profound changes taking place around the world, interdependence deepens, interests converge, and the connectivity expands. Nations are inextricably developing into a community of shared interest, shared responsibilities, and a shared destiny. Yet imbalance in development remains so widespread and so acute that it's not only an economic problem, but one at the root of many problems we face today. People across the world are calling and striving for 
more balanced and sustainable development. In 2003, in his two visits to one to the Central, East, the Central Asia and one to the Southeast Asia, President Xi Jinping put forward the initiative of the Silk Road Economic Belt and the 21st Century Maritime Silk Road, shortened as the Belt and Road Initiative. It has since been well-received around the world. Many friends in Britain, of course, uh, Mr. Perry is a good friend of mine, told me and recognized that the initiative was too important to ignore and had significant potential. They also think it's highly complex and more elaboration analysis needed. I all agree. As an open proposal and evolving process, it runs the, the initiative envisaged and it runs through the continents of Af uh, Asia, Europe, Africa, connecting the dynamic East Asia on, the one, on, the, on one end, the advanced Europe on the other, and the vast area with huge development potential in between. As President Xi said, the Belt and the Road Initiative comes from the Asian Silk Road, but it is not limited to the area of the Asian Silk Road. It's in fact a big circle friend. Whoever interested are all welcome to take part in. So I would like to borrow a couple of figures, two, three, five, six, seven, eight, and a ten, to elaborate a bit on its key contents. First, the initiative has two major parts. The Silk Road Economic Belt, 21st Century Maritime Silk Road. So that's why we call it the Belt and Road Initiative, single form. So it's two comes, one, comes into one. Yeah, the Silk Road Economic Belt, it's on land, focuses on generally in three directions. One, bring together China, Central Asia, Russia, and the Baltic. So it's north, northern direction. The middle line is linking China with the Persian Gulf and the Mediter Mediter Mediterranean Sea via Central Asia and the West Asia. And the southern line, it connects China with the South China, Southeast Asia, South Asia, and the Indian Ocean. The 21st century maritime Silk Road, which is the Silk Road by sea, has two major lines. One goes from China's coast to Europe via the South China Sea, the Indian Ocean in one direction, the other from China's coast through the South China Sea to the South Pacific in the other. So it connects to Australia. So it focuses on smooth, secure, efficient transport routes connecting major seaports. So that two parts, three key principles. Extensive consultation, joint action, shared benefit. These are very important principles that China firmly adheres to. And we think the success and the progress, the implementation of the initiative, uh, I think should be built on these uh, key three principles. China is carrying out extensive consultation with others on an equal footing, respect choice of each of others, ensures transparency and openness, aligns the initiative 
with the development strategies of other countries and creates synergy with existing regional cooperation mechanisms. The initiative follows market operation, so government proposes, market operates. It's pl- pluralistic and highly flexible in cooperation. It is to be worked by all, built by all, and shared by all. And five major goals. The Belt and the Road Initiative has five major goals. It's policy coordination, facility connectivity, unimpeded trade, <coughs> financial integration, and people-to-people bonds. Policy coordination is the important guarantee for Im- <coughs> implementing the initiative. It's the political policy level uh, coordination. Facility, facility, facility connectivity is the priority area. That's mainly um, for infrastructure, communication, you know, connectivity. And this is the major area that we are going to work on. Unimpeded trade is a major task you know, to facilitate the investment and the trade uh, cooperation to unleash uh, further the potential of cooperation. Financial integration is the important underpinning you know, for currency stability, currency swapping, and settlement arrangement. This is an important underpinning for implementing the I- initiative. And people-to-people bonds is one of the ends of the initiative, and it is also uh, the, 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 uh, a very important factor. It's, it consolidates public support uh, for the implementation of the initiative. Six ex- economic corridors. So on land, on land, I just said the, the, the first part of the initiative is the Silk Road Economic Belt. Well, that's the belt on land. It consists of, now we are envi- envisaging six major economic corridors. A new Eurasian land bridge between China and Europe. China, Mongolia, Russia, economic corridor. China, Central Asia, West Asia economic corridor. China, Indo, China, Peninsula economic corridor. China, Pakistan economic corridor, which is now uh, is going forward uh, in, in a very positive way. And uh, Bangladesh, China, India, Myanmar economic corridor. So these are six major economic corridors. These corridors are along their major international transport routes. There are major cities and hubs along the way. There are also key economic industrial parks being planned and already built to serve as cooperation platforms. And seven important financial platforms. The initiative could not get off ground and succeed if there is no solid support in terms of finance, finance cooperation mechanisms. A Chinese policy document on the Belt and Road Initiative, which was issued, I think, last April, listed at least seven important financing platforms. AIIB, the Silk Road Fund, China Eurasia Economic Cooperation Fund, China ASEAN Interbank Association, Shanghai Corporation Interbank Association, BRICS Development Bank, and the Shanghai Corporation Financing Institution. But I think we see at least seven. 
It's not exclusive. Huh? There, are, there are maybe new and more platforms c- coming up. So there are eight priority er- areas for cooperation, which is related, I think, to the five major goals. So infrastructure connectivity, industrial investment, resource development, economic and trade cooperation, financial cooperation, cultural exchanges, which falls into the (coughs) category of people-to-people bonds, ecological protection, maritime cooperation. So Belt and Road Initiatives takes into consideration of environment protection, sustainability of development. And 10 organizations and mechanisms the initiative also is also to enhance the role of multilateral cooperation mechanisms and make full use of existing mechanisms. So it's not uh, building up brand new mechanisms, structures. It's building on what is we have now. So these are 10 major organizations, among others. Shanghai Cooperation Organization, ASEAN plus China, 10 plus 1. APEC, ASEM, Asia Cooperation Dialogue, SICA, China Arab States Cooperation <coughs> Forum, China Gulf Cooperation Council Strategic Dialogue, Great Megong Subregion Economic Cooperation, and Central Asia Regional Economic Cooperation. China also proposes to set up an international summit forum on the Belt and Road Initiative just to to build further consensus uh, on, on, on this initiative. But it is not there yet. We, we, we have proposed. So deep-rooted in history, the Belt and the Road is to revitalize the time-honored Silk Road spirit and demonstrate China's resolve to further its all-round opening up and deepen its integration with the world. It embraces the trend of the time reflecting the great potential space, potential and space for cooperation among the countries along the routes and their common aspiration to accelerate growth. That's why the initiative is met with great enthusiasm and support for more than 70 countries and international organizations since its inception. So China's vision is to realize common development through win-win cooperation. The Belt and the Road Initiative is aimed at promoting flow of economic, economic factors, improving the efficiency of resources allocation, and deepening the integration of markets, and jointly creating an open, inclusive, and balanced regional economic cooperation architecture. It endeavors to explore new models of international cooperation and global governance, foster a true sense of community of shared interests and work to secure the greatest common interests possible and achieve common development. To a larger extent, I would say, if the industrialization in history brought wealth to what is today the developed world countries of about one million people, the Belt and the Road Initiative, through enhanced regional cooperation, connectivity, and a new new type of industrialization, could benefit and enrich more than 4 billion people across Eurasia and beyond. In the course of this historical process, it's simply impossible 
to be China's solo, but rather a symphony of all partners involved. The momentum is dynamic. In a little more than two years, the Belt and the Road Initiative has entered a phase of implementation. Some of the early harvest programs have taken place. I list a few facts. China and quite a number of countries along the routes have aligned their respective development strategies and signed more than 30 MOUs. It's intergovernmental MOUs and agreements of cooperation on the joint development of the Belt and the Road, among which seven are with European countries. China has also worked with countries along the Belt and the Road on a number of key cooperation projects where the conditions are right. AIIB is now up and running on a solid, broad-based foundation with wide representation. Its launching ceremony was held in Beijing just two weeks ago. So it has, it has entered operation. A total of five, 57 countries from all five continents became the founding members of AIIB, among which 17 are from Europe. The United Kingdom is the first among major Western countries. Many more are waiting and applying for participation. AIIB is well on its way to integrate into the global financial system as a lean, clean, and green institution that addresses Asia's infrastructure needs. The Silk Road Fund is operating well. Its first investment goes to a hydropower station project of 1.65 billion US dollars in Pakistan. These projects and financial institutions are highly inclusive and open. They operate in accordance with the prevailing international rules and in collaboration with the established mechanisms. Connectivity leads to prosperity, and that is what the Belt and Road Initiative is primarily about. China and Europe are natural partners for cooperation. The, co the opportunity for Europe and the UK is huge. Trade between Asia and Europe now only accounts for 10% for their total, which points to a huge potential to be tapped. The European Commission has issued new EU transport infrastructure policy to develop core networks of nine new corridors by 2020. The project will cost more than 250 billion euros. China is ready to work with countries in the region to build up a network of infrastructure on Eurasia. The Hungary-Serbia railway project is a case in point. A land-sea express passageway between China and Europe has been planned and been developed on the basis of extended and upgraded Hungary-Serbia railway. So last November, when 16 plus one summit was held in China, Chinese Premier Li Keqiang signed with Serbian and uh, Hungary uh, prime ministers to start uh, this uh, upgrading Hungary-Serbia railway project. And the project started last month. December, last December. So it's, it's, it's already started. In two years' time, when the upgrading of Hungary-Serbia railway is finished, the travel time by train from Budapest to Belgrade will be reduced from eight hours to a bit over two hours. 
This express passageway will further extend from Belgrade to the Piraeus port of Greece in the south via Skopje of Macedonia. It will bring direct benefit to a population of more than 32 million and open up a new channel for China's export to Europe and for European goods to reach China. China will also work with European partners to set up coordination mechanisms to handle railway transport and customs clearance and build up the brand of China-Europe freight trains. China looks forward to building more express passageways between China and Europe by expanding China-Europe cooperation and deepening regional cooperation. We can make the cake bigger, even bigger, so that everyone can have a larger share in common development. China and the UK have decided to deepen their unparalleled long-term partnership on financial services as a leading area in their bilateral relationship and to cooperate on each other's major initiatives, namely China's Belt and Road Initiative and the UK's National Infrastructure Plan and the Northern Powerhouse. Both governments support their businesses to combine China's production capacity and equipment manufacturing with UK expertise. The two sides are ready to enhance global industrial cooperation and are open to exploring cooperation involving third parties. Both sides are committed to further cooperation on energy and transport in each other's countries. Last page. Everyone here, I think, is familiar with Laozi, founder of the Chinese Taoist philosophies. He said, also more than 2,500 years ago, the sage does not store up by helping others as best as he can. He's helped even more. By giving others as much as he can, he became richer and richer still. China's own historical experience speaks loudly of how different cultures and faiths could interact and thrive together without doing each other harm. China's reform and opening up in recent decades and its fast growing into the largest trading partner of over 120 countries is a testament to how closely connected China has been with the world and how much peaceful development and win-win cooperation can deliver. China is all for a new type of international relations of win-win cooperation. The Belt and the Road Initiative is a public good China provides to the world. The vision has been met with actions. I'm sure that with conviction, commitment, and cooperation, and by working together, we can surely perform the symphony of the Belt and the Road Initiative grand and spectacular and make real positive differences for all of us. And thank you and I wish you all a sound and a successful year of the monkey. Thank you, uh, Minister Councillor Zhang Jiming. And uh, now uh, is uh, uh, Mr. Stephen Perry, please. Thank you very much indeed. Are we live and on? Um, uh, Joanna, um, George, Lantau, uh, Minister Zhang Jiming. Um, thank you very much indeed for inviting me to make a contribution to today. It is probably, in my opinion, the most important subject for the world going forward. So important is it today that I abandoned going to watch my favorite team, Arsenal, in a cup match. <laughs> there is no greater respect that I can show. But it is. 
is, it is, a, um, it is in, in my opinion, uh, very important. And usually I speak without notes. Uh, but today I've, I've written, together with my colleague Keith Bennett, um, the presentation that I'm going to give. So I hope you'll excuse me for reading. And I hope you'll excuse me that um, I haven't yet mastered making slides. So I'll try and intonate my voice every now and then to keep your attention. But there are people around the room who, if any of you fall asleep, there's trouble. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it's always a great pleasure for me to support and participate in the China Development Forum at the LSE. Since its inception, it has gone from strength to strength. I truly see it as a gathering of future leaders. I have been following China, the events there, and the development of the country all my life. It has been the greatest privilege of my life to be a witness to, um, and if I may say so, a modest participant in one of the greatest chapters in human history. I refer to the remarkable transformation and development of China in an unprecedentedly short period of time into the world's second largest economy and the transition from poverty to the beginnings of moderate prosperity that this has entailed for well over a billion people. Given the majesty of China's history, culture and civilization, I prefer to refer to this not as the rise of China, but as the return of China. Now that China has returned, the question of what sort of country it will be, what role it will play in the world, is something that naturally concerns the entire international community. It is against this background that China has advanced the concepts of a global community of common destiny, of shared prosperity, equality and mutual benefit, and win-win cooperation. China, having suffered from poverty and oppression in the past, understands that a world where only China develops and its neighbors and the wider world either stagnate or relapse into poverty and conflict is not only undesirable, it's actually impossible. China itself has prospered by opening its door to the outside world. Sustainable and lasting prosperity has to mean prosperity for all. This is the thinking behind a whole range of China's recent initiatives. For example, the development of BRICS along with Brazil, Russia, India and South Africa and the creation of that organization's new development bank. Of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank formally launched in Beijing earlier this month and especially of our topic of the moment, the great vision of jointly building the Silk Road Economic Belt and the 21st Century Maritime Silk Road. As Minister Zhang has already explained in his brilliant presentation, this is a new idea, but one with an ancient lineage. As the National Development and Reform Commission, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Ministry of Commerce of the People's Republic of China have jointly observed, quote, more than two millennia ago, the diligent and courageous people of Eurasia explored and opened up several routes of trade and cultural exchanges that linked the major civilizations of Asia, Europe, and Africa, collectively called the Silk Road by later generations. For thousands of years, the Silk Road spirit, peace and cooperation, openness and inclusiveness, mutual learning and mutual benefit has been passed from generation to generation, promoted the progress of human civilization, and contributed greatly 
to the prosperity and development of the countries along the Silk Road, symbolizing communication and cooperation between the East and the West. The Silk Road spirit is a historic and cultural heritage shared by all countries around the world. China's initiative to jointly build the Belt and Road, embracing the trend towards a multipolar world, economic globalization, cultural diversity, and greater IT application, is designed to uphold global free trade and an open world economy and to enhance regional cooperation. It aims at being highly efficient in terms of the allocation of resources and at achieving a deep integration of markets among the countries along the Belt and Road, thereby jointly creating an open, inclusive and balanced regional economic cooperation architecture that benefits us all. According to the vision of the Chinese government, the Belt and Road Initiative is in line with the purposes and principles of the United Nations Charter. It upholds the five principles of peaceful coexistence, namely mutual respect for each other's sovereignty and territorial integrity, mutual non-aggression, mutual non-interference in each other's internal affairs, equality and mutual benefit, and peaceful coexistence. The initiative is an open one. It covers but is not limited to the area of the ancient Silk Road. It is open to all countries and international and regional organizations so that the results will benefit wider parts of the globe as well. It is harmonious and inclusive. It advocates tolerance among civilizations, respects the paths of development chosen by different countries, and supports dialogues among different civilizations on the principles of seeking common ground whilst reserving differences and drawing on each other's strengths so that all countries can coexist in peace for common prosperity. The New Silk Road follows market principles. It will abide by market rules and international norms, will give play to the decisive role of the market in resource allocation and the primary role of enterprises and will also let governments perform their due functions. The New Silk Road is envisaged to go in five directions and I'm repeating here a little bit of, of what uh, Minister Zhang has said but if you're like me, you're probably, I mean, you're obviously more intelligent because you, most of you got into good universities. Well, I did, actually. I went to UCL. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I have to, I, I've had to hear this many different times uh, to absorb it, so I would make no apology for repeating uh, some of what uh, Minister Jiang has said because I think it is very valuable. The new Silk Road is envisaged to go, I'd say, in five directions, from northwest and northeast China through Central Asia and Russia to the Baltic Sea. Reading fast, but try and imagine these routes as I talk about them. From northwest China through Central Asia and the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean. From southwest China through the Indochina Peninsula, Malaysia and Singapore to the Indian Ocean. From the Chinese ports through the South China Sea and the Straits of Malacca to the Indian Ocean and westwards from there, for example, to East Africa. And by the same route, but then on to the South Pacific, from the Straits of Malacca. Six economic corridors are envisaged. From northeast China through Mongolia and Russia to the Baltics. From the coastal provinces through western China to Central Asia and then to Russia and the Baltics. From northwest China through Xinjiang, Central and West Asia to the Persian Gulf and the Mediterranean. From Yunnan and Guangxi Zhuang in southwest China 
through Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, and Malaysia to Singapore. From China through Pakistan, entering the Indian Ocean through the port of Gwadar. And through Myanmar, Bangladesh, and India, entering the Indian Ocean via the Bay of Bengal. These new silk routes will, will, routes will embrace and will require major investments in railways, highways, sea transportation, pipelines, and the information superhighway and connectivity. To translate this grand vision into reality will require trillions of dollars of investment in infrastructure and in all sectors of the economy in the more than 60 countries directly encompassed within the new Silk Road Initiative, as well as further afield. Cumulatively, it represents the greatest business opportunity in the contemporary world. One Belt, One Road may be the official name given to this grand project. Excuse me, Minister Jang, but personally I prefer the new Silk Road. Both historically and today, there have been many terms coined to describe the great landmass that is generally broken down into the three continents of Asia, Africa, and Europe. One of them dates back to ancient Greece. Ecumen was held to be synonymous with the known, inhabited, and civilized world entering into general usage in the fourth century. This ecumen embraced such European civilizations as Greece and Rome, such African civilizations as Egypt, and such Asian civilizations as Persia and China. From ecumen, we derive the word ecumenical, which in the Christian religion denotes the aspiration and search for unity and inclusivity. But whatever name it may have been given, for centuries the diverse peoples of Africa, Europe and Asia have shared a common home. History has recorded great conflicts and injustices, but over long historical periods, nations and peoples have also traded and mingled peacefully, their interactions facilitating the exchange not only of goods and commodities, but also of knowledge, techniques and ideas. The ancient Silk Road from China to Rome was one such great highway. Also worthy of mention are the epic voyages all round Asia and to East Africa by Admiral Zheng He in the 15th century. There is an excellent book that you can get to complement today's superb talk by Minister Zhang Jiming. It is The Silk Roads by the Oxford academic Peter Frankopan. It will tell you the history and put it in a current and future context. If you do not know where things come from, you cannot know to where they will go. That has always been my personal philosophy, and it contains what many very clever people have said many times. I have simply endeavored to translate it into my own shorthand. But my own study of history has taught me that President Xi's idea of the new Silk Roads takes the past and updates it brilliantly with a view to managing both present and future challenges. If, for example, you wonder why a road curves and wanders instead of going straight through a valley, you can find out the reason easily enough by seeing the obstacles that the road has bypassed. They might be rivers, mountains, or a ravine, but it will have its logic, and the Silk Roads have theirs. We should know the past for this important reason. However, the progress of science, technology, and civilization will surely sweep away many of the obstacles, and hence the need to make some of the detours that were required in the past. For example, a future high-speed train running from Urumqi to Istanbul will use new technologies, 
quite likely including magnetic levitation, to shorten the route and create a new way. Across three great continents, the new Silk Roads will create new ways by using the three highs, namely high-speed trains, high-speed energy transmission, high-speed connectivity and communications. Some say that one might, in the not-too-distant future, be able to travel by train from London to Beijing in just two days, and that the internet and electricity will flow across all the rail lines, roads, highways and canals alongside the new and revised shipping routes, as well as the cables and pipelines powering connectivity and transporting oil and natural gas. In other words, a revolution in infrastructure, technology and connectivity, such as the world has never seen before, bringing unparalleled development and prosperity and affording unprecedented investment and growth opportunities. Of course, one cannot deny that many of the countries and regions embraced within the New Silk Roads are today mired in wars and conflicts. From Central Asia to the Middle East and beyond, there presently exists a veritable arc of crisis where ancient and modern rivalries coalesce, seeming inexorably into ever greater hatreds and even more desperate acts of viciousness and cruelty. One need only mention a few of the names, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Somalia, Yemen, Ukraine, and too many more. The future promise of the new Silk Roads will therefore not be attained easily, and the difficulties and obstacles should never be underestimated. Yet it is not naive to hold out this vision for the future. Viewed correctly, it might rather said, be said to be a supreme act of realism, for without hope, without development, without knowledge, without prosperity, how can there ever be lasting peace? How can hatred ultimately make way for coexistence, mutual respect and amity? Such is the long-term strategic thinking that lies, for example, behind President Xi's bold and imaginative <coughs> recent visit to Saudi Arabia, Egypt and Iran. There is so much to strive for. History has not ended. Perhaps it is scarcely beginning. For those who have flown by day from Beijing to London, what you notice when looking out of the window for much of the time are vast expanses of nothing. Contrary to popular myth, much of our world is underpopulated. So alongside and as a result of the greatest infrastructure investment boom in history will come the greatest ever wave of urbanization something that is being trailed right now in China as hundreds of millions of peasants move to new towns and cities. Countless towns and cities will spring up along the new Silk Roads. Learning the lessons of history, they will hopefully be environmentally friendly, ecologically sustainable, and will respect biodiversity, conservation, and hitherto endangered species of wildlife. Crucially, they will provide the essentials of decent and civilized life to millions of people who have been denied them for too long. Minister Zhang has given us a lot of detail about the international institutions and agreements that will provide the funding and facilitate the delivery of all this. Such a plethora of structures is needed so as to meet a host of challenges and to safeguard cooperation and positive approaches in the face of short-sighted greed and destructive rivalries in the pursuit of contracts 
and the benefits to be derived from them. This will be challenging, but what we see behind the alphabet soup of multinational stakeholders is a determination to follow a rules-based approach that can guarantee the rights of all, ensure best practice, and lean, clean, and green development. If nations are responsible and keep their eye on the prize, then it is there to be won. I am an optimist. I believe it will happen. Still, it's only natural that business in the UK and Europe and elsewhere will wonder, to put it somewhat crudely, what's in it for us? Who will get the contracts? Who will manage and supervise them? It would be foolish for us to deny there is a concern that this seemingly grand vision of the new Silk Roads is simply designed to absorb China's surplus capacity, to use its reserves by recycling them into projects that will simply represent contracts for Chinese companies using Chinese surplus production and employing Chinese labor. If this were indeed to be China's hidden agenda, it would fail. Governments and businesses are not so stupid as to fail to see through any such scheme. In fact, China has repeatedly stressed it cannot assume the full responsibility for this project. Its vision is so grandiose that the burden would be too great. China's position, rather, is that this project will only work if it becomes everyone's project. Everybody has to play their part and do their bit. It is, as you said, an orchestral performance, not a virtuoso solo. And this collective rationale and approach, moreover, is on an open and inclusive basis. There is no closed list of countries that can or cannot participate. It is open to the whole world. Of course, the new Silk Roads will take full advantage of China's skills, funds, excess capacity, and everything else that it has to offer. China certainly needs this, but so do the countries that will benefit, and who in many cases are eagerly, even insistently, requesting it. But that is very different from entering into this project simply to ma maximize those features. A grand vision cannot be reduced to or realized for such comparatively trivial reasons. Rather, this project will work because it will be based upon the full participation of all national governments, their procurement agencies, and on global competition based on market principles, governed by the rule of law and subject to transparent tendering, oversight, regulation, and arbitration. Perhaps over the next 10 years or so, there will be an annual outlay of a million a trillion dollars a year to lay the foundations of this global transformation. Then, as the momentum increases, over 30 years or so, the spend may rise to some total of 40 to 50 trillion dollars. Simply put, there will be no greater contribution to world GDP growth and to development in this historical period. How much can we in the West expect to take, this, to take of this in terms of contracts awarded, exports, and so on? In my opinion, somewhere between 15 to 20 percent, although it would be greater in the more sophisticated added value of the latter stages of adding refined finishes to urbanization and the various advanced and high-tech products and services that characterize its lifestyle. As you journey through China, you can see that the world's latest technologies and products still tend to be mainly Western or Japanese. China's extensive purchase and usage of high-end Western and Japanese technologies and products will be replicated along the countries of the Belt and Road. For example, in any building in China today over five floors, the lifts are invariably foreign. 
We shall also play a significant part in legal, accounting, financial, regulatory and other professional services as well as in funding and listings. This is a one belt, one road for all, the ultimate win-win. I believe it will change the world forever and leave behind empires and hegemony in favor of a community of common destiny where the development of one nation is the precondition for the development of all nations. Back to the future. Ecumen shall return. Thank you. Well, uh, I think at this stage uh, I can say that after two excellent presentations, I, I should say very little. Uh, but I think the organizers say I, I need to just have a quick add-on and then, more importantly, the Q&A. So I make it short. Um, as uh, Minister Councillor Jiang already said, this is a, uh, a big sharing, uh, public good, uh, to offer to the global community to work together like an orchestra for the better common good. And uh, I think, as Mr. Perry already said, um, this is the most important topic or subject of our time. And uh, this is a new Silk Road, uh, One Bell, One Road, or Belden Road now officially. Um, I think indeed it is. If you look into the, the plan, if we go back a little bit in time, we can see that in September, around September, October uh, 2013, which is about two years ago, two, three years ago, uh, President Xi, uh, while visiting the uh, Central Asian and Southeast Asian region, uh, actually uh, in front of the uh, Indonesian parliament, mentioned about, uh, you know, a sketch of the One Bell, One Road uh, strategy. And then uh, on March 28, 2015, Minister Zhang, uh, that's the day when uh, there was a joint uh, uh, statement from the uh, NDRC, the National Reform and Development uh, Commission, uh, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, and the Ministry of uh, Commerce of the PRC, you know, about the vision of One Day One Road and the plan of action. So, uh, and the numbers uh, are shared now more and more, uh, just a few numbers, 30% of uh, world GDP, you're talking about 21,000 billion US dollars, you're talking about 35% of world trade, and 64% of world population, you're talking about 4.4 billion people, and 64 countries. So that's why this is the most important topic, and this is a big orchestra if we want to do it together. And uh, President Xi Jinping also mentioned about the five interconnects, or the five uh, clear channels. First is uh, policy coordination. Second is infrastructure. Third is about trade, and fourth is about capital, free flow. And finally is people-to-people -people links, bond bonding. So all these uh, are supposed to be the, the principles for, for this orchestra to be uh, well-played and well-enjoyed together. Now, uh, but the challenges are many, of course. Uh, but before that, I'd like to just quickly mention a couple of uh, uh, examples of things coming our way. Now, I think on the other side of, the, of, of our floor, uh, uh, the, another team is talking about AI, AIIB, 
and that is one uh, concrete uh, co uh, organization since the founding of, uh, let's say, post-World World War II uh, organizations like uh, IFC and all of that, uh, ADB, and now AIIB. So it's a huge step uh, with uh, so many countries uh, having uh, passed through all the hurdles to come together. Uh, so it's a great step forward. And then alongside, we can see some other platforms being built, like the, uh, I think Premier Li Keqiang also recently announced the establishment of uh, the Asia Financial Sector Cooperation Association. I don't, I may not quote the name correctly. Uh, it's Ya uh, Zhou Jinrong Hezhuo Xiehui. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, the, the, I think that that is being planned, but platforms like that, including the Silk Road Fund, the Maritime Silk Road Bank, the China ASEAN Cooperation Fund, the China African Fund, and so on, all these things are there to actually help the efforts. And then we talk about uh, some other bright spots or, or opportunities like uh, the ASEAN region or Southeast Asia, the 10 countries uh, just south of China, which is very important, not only because of the, uh, the issues in South China Sea and, and, and other things, uh, it is really the gateway and the first step of one road. So the 21st century Maritime Sea Road starts with the ASEAN region. So the first stop and the gateway without, you know, uh, good effect there is uh, difficult to imagine a very successful one road kind of implementation. So, and, and in that topic, I think Hong Kong can play a big role because every, ten, every one of the 10 countries of ASEAN region uh, has a big presence in Hong Kong. Hong Kong is really uh, a, 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 on top of Singapore. I think in addition to Singapore, Hong Kong is uh, is a natural gateway uh, to link with the ASEAN region. And that is where uh, being a major international financial center, we can hope and we should aspire to be a key uh, international financial center for the new Silk Road, for, for the, the Belt and Road. I think along with London, because it's only one night's sleep away, you know, from Hong Kong. So, and I think it's a great place. Uh, out of the three major international financial centers in the world, uh, we have two together already, you know, as part of this Eurasian Renaissance, you know, this Belt and Road uh, effort. But speaking about that, uh, people may ask, then how about the non-Belt and Road uh, countries and markets? Well, I, I, my humble view is they can be part of that as well. For example, Australia and Canada, you know, uh, just an example using Hong Kong again. And people jokingly say Hong Kong is the largest Canadian city outside of Canada <laughs> because we have a lot of Canadian, uh, uh, Canadians uh, living and working in Hong Kong. And same thing, they say, uh, well, Hong Kong may be the second largest Australian city after London outside of Australia. <laughs> so by working in London, uh, in Hong Kong, you know, you can, you can pluck yourself into the Belt and Road. And the same happens with Singapore. So it, it's, it's an opportunity rather than a so-called threat because, you know, it's not, uh, uh, it's not about the, the uh, uh, decreasing the importance of the Malacca trade or the, the Singapore uh, position as an international port city. Uh, 
but it's more trade and also participation into the Belt and Road uh, Orchestra. So these are opportunities and challenges, but the key uh, challenges include, uh, for example, how to deal with uh, domestic expectations. So people will say, well, we are helping public good, we're helping the rest of the world, but what about our own people? So there's a lot of balancing, and the Chinese government has been working very hard to make sure that the, the Belt and Road thing is a, is a positive, a net positive uh, you know, uh, project uh, for, for not only the world, but for China as well. And this, this takes uh, a lot of communication and we can see the importance of how to deal with it, the Islamic world as well, because I think half of the Belt and Road markets, you, know, you, you, you have to deal with Islamic culture and Islamic finance and all of that, and we need to do more there. And then, of course, we, we have seen um, uh, things like uh, uh, G2 dynamics, you know, China, US, of course, TPP and all of that, all have to be factored in. But a lot of research needs to be done, including, for example, um, how to do PPP, public sector, private sector partnership, which is very important for, 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 the, for the Belt and Road projects. And Belt and Road projects are absolutely useful, and if we do it right, design it right, structure it right, it can be very beneficial because uh, things that are needed by Belt and Road markets like water, ports, highway, uh, high-speed railing and so on, uh, should, be, should be made economically attractive and bankable. And that way we can make use of private sector uh, uh, financing as well. And I'm sure there'll be a lot of opportunities, including the opportunities uh, uh, in issuing debt for projects, bankable projects. Uh, Hong Kong should seek, for, seek that opportunity to be a center to issue debt, uh, to raise debt capital. Um, and other things, uh, if I can say, we need to do more research. Uh, just before um, the panel, I think Mr. Perry mentioned about two potential uh, bright stars uh, along the Belt and Road. And I was, I was jokingly saying, London, Hong Kong. And they said, no, Urumuchi and Istanbul. So I say, wow, I need to jot down because I want the research colleagues to look into these two right away. And then I found out recently that in, in China, every year we have hundreds of students graduating from this person, person language specialty. So I think China is already looking into Iran markets and, and all of that. And so, so all these things have to be done in order to really uh, make the best of the Belt and Road opportunities. And finally, uh, I'd like to say that nothing uh, is more important uh, now than people-to-people uh, -people efforts. So public diplomacy, policy advocacy, and networking like this, and learning together, communication, dialogue, you know, this is all needed uh, on top of G2G efforts, governmental efforts. So at, th at this juncture, I think I don't want to just drag on but I'd like to open the floor to questions and suggestions. Thank you. Uh, my name is Kevin Tu. I work for the International Energy Agency. 
I was uh, at the Belt and the Road Initiative panel uh, just now I switched here because I'm uh, very curious about one question. Hopefully I can hear some answers on this. What's the connection between the Belt and the Road Initiative and AIIB? I'm interested uh, in both uh, the government uh, position on this issue and also uh, insight from the business community. Thank you. Uh, Minister Zhang, uh, would you like to mm -hmm. talk about that? Yeah, thanks. Uh, yes, the other one. Maybe two questions at a time and then we can deal with it. Yes. Um, home and abroad across the globe together. And would you say um, the spirit of Silk Road and the search for inclusiveness should not be confined to efforts of national institutions, but rather an initiative that can be taken on as an individual, a student like myself, um, and something that uh, we could contribute to. And also, uh, I, want, I wonder, um, I find this speech from the panel today very inspirational. And may I have um, the panel's consent to feature some of today's key ideas in the first issue of our weekly publication of the Overseas Young um, Talent Association? Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Maybe the first, uh, but thank you very much. Uh, we come to that. And uh, maybe Minister Jiang, uh, uh, would you like to talk about the relation with AIIB and the Yes, I think the Belt and the Road Initiative and AIIB, they are related, but they are not uh, the same. Uh, the Belt and the Road Initiative is, uh, I think, a much bigger, larger initiative uh, than AIIB. AIIB, I think, uh, uh, the purpose, I think, uh, uh, I think is mainly to 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 uh, to work for uh, the the demand and the need from the uh, lack of uh, development in infrastructure uh, in Asia. Uh, we have noticed that there is a big uh, lack of development in infrastructure in Asia Pacific uh, Asia area. The ADB uh, Asia Development Bank has did done the research. I think concluding that in between 2010 to 2020. There is a big need of uh, one trillion investment in infrastructure, but what the multi-international financial institution could mobilize is just uh, 10 to 20 billion U.S. dollars. So such a gap, I think uh, IIB, AIIB is mainly for infrastructure, and, and the connectivity and infrastructure connectivity also is uh, a key. Yes. Component of the initiative. Yes. That's why I think it's related. Uh, uh, they are linked. But yeah. uh, there is a uh, AIB could be a, a good uh, supporting financial platform for for uh, the Belt and Road Initiative. Oh. Yes. Okay. Thank you, uh, Mr. Perry. Anything to add to that? Yeah. Um, well, I think without um, one belt, one road, there wouldn't probably be an Asian uh, an AIIB. It's it's all part of a. Chinese vision of the interlinking of Asia, uh, exactly as uh, Minister Zhang says. Um, I think it's McKinsey produced a report saying that the need for infrastructure in uh, Asia in uh, up till 2030 is approaching $30 trillion. 
and um, AIIB um, uh, name dropping. Uh, when I met um, Jin Li Chun, who's the di uh, president, I think chief executive, uh, he said um, he thought by re leveraging and re-leveraging their assets, they could probably fund about three quarters of a trillion dollars of contracts. I don't know what pace those turn over, so but the, the bottom line re remains that it's going to do a small part of the total need mm. of the mm. area. But um, it, it's certainly totally linked to one belt, one road. But I agree entirely with Minister Jang that it's a, a percentage of it rather than the mm. mechanism for it. Yeah, I agree. And uh, it's a definitely a positive icon and a confidence-building platform and also a first step in this long march. Um, anyway, uh, and then two more. Yeah, here. And then, um, we come to that. Yeah, we come to that. But this and this. Yeah. I'm first. Uh, okay. don't, don't worry. These two first and then these two. Yeah. Uh, Raymond Lee from the BBC. Um, well, I, I... Is this I, off the record or on the record? Uh, oh. Well, <laughs> whatever <laughs> you, you, <laughs> you call it. So, sorry for this, but yeah. just half a minute. About this uh, second question, I think the answer is yes. We are delight delighted to be uh, to share the information, to be uh, uh, you know share more. Yeah, thank you. Please. Okay. Well, actually, uh, I personally do agree that uh, you know uh, a Belt and Road Initiative is a you know very far-reaching and uh, grand strategies. But then my question is on the concrete things. Uh, first of all, um, does Chinese government have a timetable? How long would it take to complete the whole thing? Or is it just a continuing project? Second question is, well, actually, do we have like sort of a timetable in terms of priorities? Because there are so many directions. And uh, I guess maybe Chinese government has got some sort of uh, you know, ideas in mind where we will start first or second or third or whatever. That's the question. Thank you. Then this lady yeah, in front. Oh, yeah. Uh, you don't have a question? Yeah. And then, yeah. My question relates to his question. So apart from um, uh, obvious, obvious problems like uh, funding or domestic um, uprising and all that, um, I think the most important challenge China has to face here is security, especially since all the, a lot of countries um, the OBOR encompasses our countries with poor credit, meaning that all of these projects will be met with, ver with, with impl implementation problems, um, dealing with maybe the Islamic faith or sectarian violence. And does China have a concrete policy to, um, to resolve these conflicts and to uh, pacify the region? That's my question. Uh, also, uh, you're talking about credit enhancing measures. You know, Credit enhancing measures of those countries yeah. in Central Asia okay. and yeah. the Islamic threat um, in South Asia. Okay, maybe we do it one by one. Uh, two more and then these two. Yeah. Um, okay. May oh, I see. Yeah. Sorry. Um, well, first of all, in reply to the, my um, comrade from UCL. Couldn't forget you. Um, <laughs> in, in the end, this is about people to people. So you can spend a lot of time talking about the buildings, the railways, and everything. What's it for is to create a world where, like Europe, where we can all move without uh, being concerned about um, nations clashing. I mean, just look at Europe fought for 2,000 years. Uh, we may decide whether or not we want to be in Europe. Without Europe, we'd probably still be killing each other. 
So <laughs> the, partly the answer to your question about um, uh, the problems of Asia and the, 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 inter, uh, the, uh, the tensions and so on, Europe is an example of what you can do if you build an economic area which is vibrant. Now, Europe's got its problems, but it has brought peace in Europe for the last 60 years, which we haven't seen for 2,000 years, and it's about people feeling comfortable in the areas they're in. Um, I, I think that the, um, uh, the questions about China's, has China got timings, priorities, plans, difficult, all this sort of thing. You know, in 1990, the vice governor of Yunnan tried to convince me to put a plant in uh, Kunming. And when he did that, uh, I said to him, why would I ever want to go to a landlocked province in a, a mountainous area uh, in the middle of uh, nowhere? Uh, actually, we'd already decided to go there, but I wasn't going to tell him that. <laughs> <laughs> he then unfolded to me the plans for Yunnan then in 1990, which were clearly the preparations for the Silk Road. So the one thing that you really need to grasp, in my opinion, about all of this is another phrase which we haven't used today called the scientific road of development, the scientific path of development. What does that mean? That means that you think things through a long time in advance. You have an idea of where that bend in the road is going to, and you're keeping your eye on there. You may be changing the destination. You're going through the road to that destination, and you're adjusting it as you go through towards it. Um, it means you test, you research, you experiment before you set your plans. So now as we look back over the last 37 years, we can see that that is the basis of how China operates. So has China got a plan? Yes. But is it set in concrete? No. It's ready to adjust to the realities of what goes on in, in the world and how different parts of the world react to it. And if this isn't working, China will go down there. China's very multi um, multi-mechanism, I haven't quite got the right <laughs> word. So, you know, if the Americans won't let Huawei in, so Huawei will go to Africa. You know, China always has alternatives, but at the back of it is a long-term plan. And the long-term plan is about the security of Asia, because Asia is insecure. But if you can build um, the type of environment for South Asia and for the Middle East that Europe has built, uh, regardless of how we think about the euro or how we think about Greece and these sorts of things, if you have those types of long-term objectives and you have the plans to how to get there and you adjust them as you face realities, um, I, think that, uh, I think that it's all there. But I don't think China's trying to lay down on other people exactly how they're going to do it. So I don't think you'll ever see the plan. Yeah, Minister Jai, anything to add? Yes. Yeah. 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 I, I agree with almost uh, all what you said. Yeah. This uh, initiative, I think, uh, I agree that it's a continuing process, um, and it takes long. I don't think there is a, we have worked out the, 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 the mega plan. It's not our plan, it's a plan to be worked out by all. But that, in that sense, we have to be patient, you know, while keep your vision, while keep working. But we, we should not uh, leave uh, to, 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 you know, give up. Uh, our efforts where conditions are right, where possibilities are there. So that's why we, um, we are also very uh, actively push forward what can be done. So there are, nowadays there are many flagship projects are going on very well, like uh, China-Pakistan Economic Corridor and uh, the, the project that I've mentioned in East Europe, 
and uh, in China, Mongolia, Russia, economic corridor. So they are going forward. So where there is possible, we shall move forward with urgency mm. while keeping the vision alive. And for security issues, yeah, I think uh, Ms. Parry has touched upon that in your speech. And, and uh, yes, there are many challenges in terms of security, confrontations, di disputes. But I think uh, the reason of uh, one of the reasons that uh, w why these things are happening is, is the unbalanced uh, development. This is one of the cause of the issues. So that's why I think uh, we, we, shall, we shall keep on. Uh, with, with this uh, uh, initiative, I think this is also one way of, of tackling this. But uh, there are security issues, uh, risks. Uh, while moving forward, we shall be careful with caution and work together mm. and judge the risks properly mm. because it, it follows market operation. So companies, markets, they, they, they have the intention to, be, to avoid the risks. So I think uh, it's, a, it's a collective uh, effort. Well, thank you very much. I think the uh, about the uh, credit uh, and risk uh, question. I think uh, just add one quick point, and that is, uh, uh, yes, these are uh, uh, difficult markets, and to really work with them, and we need to have the team efforts of uh, various credit enhancing measures, including bringing the best companies, uh, let's say from China, and uh, financial institutions from the region and the world to work together. Um, let's say if you go to um, a place um, like Myanmar for uh, agriculture project and you want to use AIIB money uh, for a large-scale project, then, then maybe one credit-enhancing measure is to bring in Kofco, the largest Chinese agri-company, you know, to, to be part of that uh, industry know-how, domain knowledge and expertise, and then bring in you know, uh, somebody like uh, major financial organizations that, that knows agriculture and food, you know, to work together. Um, of course, uh, the whole region has to go through uh, more reforms and deeper reforms to have, um, uh, to, to, to help SMEs and, you know, to uh, actually have the right uh, law and regulations to protect foreign investment and, uh, you know, intellectual property. And the list is endless. Uh, anyway, is now these two and yes, can we have the questions quickly? Yes, uh, thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Minister John. Very uh, right. Uh, I'm a Hong Konger working in London actually, so I have two questions. Uh, first is, I understand in, uh, in ancient Silk Road, it's not just goods uh, that travel on the Silk Road; it's also students and also ideas. So, what, is there a component of um, of, of similar, you know, spreading of uh, let's say scholarships? or even a budget to set up Confucian institutions in this uh, initiative. And secondly, we know that on uh, Silk Road, it's not just up the above two, but also selective few uh, Westerners actually came through the Silk Road to China, be them explorers or Italian missionaries. I just wonder, is this an, also an initiative that can, uh, China can do more in, uh, you know, philanthropy as well as humanitarian uh, efforts and, uh, you know, maybe offer, similarly, more individuals a new life like the, the forebears did in the past. Thank you. Wonderful. Just 
one question and that's it and we will make it one minute yeah okay uh, thank you to the experts for the very insightful inspiring presentation I'm a postgraduate student at LSC and I have a question for minister councillor uh, what is your opinion on the coordination agreement between the Silk Road initiative and Eurasian Economic Union and what do you think are areas for cooperation there thank you okay. mm -hmm. Maybe Minister Chen. Yeah. Your question, yes, it's yes. a good question, and uh, uh, I think very important the thing that uh, I think uh, we are doing now, together with our partners, is to align our development strategies with each other. So, Eurasian Economic uh, Union and uh, the Belt and the Road Initiative. Uh, we have agreed, made an agreement to align these two uh, to accommodate each other's uh, goals, efforts, programs. So I think it's a good beginning and, uh, and it's very significant. Eurasian Economic Union is, uh, is, is, a, is also a very important uh, uh, program. So I think uh, we have started. We have first we have agreed to mm -hmm. align, yes. to aligning the two initiatives. Then we are exploring the areas that we are going to, to cooperate, to work on. So I think the potential is good, and uh, I think the, the message is very positive. Yeah. Formal agreement of assigning these two projects are signed. So I think it's a good first step. Thank you very much. I mean, time is uh, limited. But uh, uh, thank you again. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, panelists, for your insights. And um, the Chinese foreign policy panel will take place in the adjacent Xi Theater. For those who are interested in ethnic policy of China, please remain in this theater. <laughs>